Hello, and welcome to another episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of ChristianGospelChurch.org. And today, we have our very special guest, Margot Kaiser, investigative journalist in Kenya. And we're going to be having a uh, in-depth yet very casual conversation about the events that have happened in Kenya with Paul McKenzie and his suicide sect. And I can't even imagine what it would be like, Margot, to be on the ground, being able to talk face-to-face to somebody who is this level of destructive in the world. This is one of the most notorious figures in the world right now. I'm trying to think back to the days of the Jonestown Massacre, what it would have been like if a journalist was actually able to go and speak directly with Jim Jones after the massacre. Yet today, you have had that opportunity to speak with McKenzie in prison. And um, I just, I'm very excited to have you on the show to talk more about what that was like. Thank you, John. Thank you so much to you both for having me. Um, what was it like? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I seized the opportunity to to even cover this story because you rarely hear about cult leaders like this, this destructive who survive um, uh, the, whatever catastrophe that they brought about, like Jim Jones. Um, and uh, what was it like? Um, I had the opportunity to meet somebody uh, in his family and um, who uh, got me into the prison. And uh, as a, uh, let's just say, a friend. And this was early days. And I also, in my capacity uh, as a a human rights advocate. Um, So... uh, it, this took place at Shimolatewa, and that's where he's been in remand for since, I think, May. And um, it's not what I thought. Uh, he, uh, you know, he had to go through the security um, and then led to a very simple room, sunshine, sunlit room, and uh, a couple of guards. And there, Mackenzie was sitting there already. Um and I was surprised because when he stood, when he stood up, uh, you know, he, he only came up to my height and I'm five, six. And so he's, you know, diminutive basically. Um, uh, he was not handcuffed. Uh, um, he seemed very humble, uh, compliant, you know, he, not, not at all aggressive, hard edged, um, I think at that stage and probably still he was he was uh, desperate um, because I think at that early in those early days, he didn't know what he was being uh, put inside for. You know, it's taken just until last week since the charges were read. So Um, but the other limitation was that uh, since I was not there as a journalist, they never would have let me in as a journalist. So uh, my my questions were very limited. Um, I I talked about his uh, his uh, one of the offspring is a very talented photographer and um, and he didn't seem at all interested in that. He just wanted to know, seemed to want to know, get me the hell out of here. <laughs> and and you know, and if you do. I think he was well aware of the fact that even if he were somehow sprung, he could easily be killed by, you know, um, a mob, uh, which is what often happens here because justice rarely comes to pass. It still could happen. They could acquit him. Um, anyway, uh, he's just, he was just very soft spoken. I mean, you've heard his, his sermons. He's very raspy voiced, very aggressive, very harsh um and that this was a completely different person this is like a, an angel how do p- the average people kind of respond to that situation with him over there like is he reviled by the average person or do they give it much thought? Yeah. um 
I've noticed anytime I mention uh, Mackenzie's name, especially to a Kenyan, they will laugh nervously. And I, I really don't know what that's about. Uh, it, it's sort of, um, how do you explain this person? It's almost like he's, a, you know, a, a troublemaker mischief, but that, um, and how did he get away with it for so long? But they laugh. Charles and I have been studying Mackenzie for quite some time when we first got the news that this had happened. He was so similar, and ironically, he and I, as you know, we've been doing the historical podcast on William Branham. He and I were discussing the things that we had found with Jim Jones and People's Temple connected to the Branham movement, which is what we research and discuss. And it was just so eerie for us because we could see the similarities of what happened in the Shakahola Forest Massacre to Jonestown. But this was worse. It takes a lot of dedication to starve yourself to to death slowly over time versus drinking just a simple glass of Kool-Aid and then immediately falling over. The level of mind control that <clears throat> McKinsey must have had over his people must have been extreme. What are your thoughts on just, you know, the massacre itself and how it happened. I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, that comes in part two of my my uh, series of three. And um, there are a lot of blank spots. But if you if you look at the, um, the charge sheet, you know, for every one of them, it's always on various dates between 2021 and 2023. So this stuff started happening over a period of two years. This wasn't just, you know, February or March of 2023. People, from what I understand, you know, they would go in there um, with COVID, you know, and since there were no medical services, um, they would die. So, you know, and for that reason, people are thinking that, it, that the number could be over a thousand because people were going in there and not many people were going out. Um, we're talking about a vast expanse of land. Um, and, you know, next to uh, the Savo National Park, where, you know, animals, hyenas can get rid of the evidence pretty quickly. Um, so, uh, well, I think from what I understand, um, First of all, you, you mentioned Ruth, okay? So Ruth uh, was the partner, was Paul McKenzie's partner when they established the Good News International um, back in, I think it was 2003. And she um, is the mother-in-law of the second, uh, McKenzie's second in command, whose name is Derry Mokalama a.k.a. Smart. Uh, I put a photo of him up on LinkedIn, various uh, social media. But he's a very, very good friend of Paul McKenzie. He acted as like the um, treasurer, I think, of, for, the, for the church. So they go way back um, to about, let's just say around 2000 or the time when he broke from uh, whatever might have been Branham related and to establish his own church, okay? So we're talking people that he knew for a really long time. This did not happen overnight. Um, and that, that is what I understand about cults. Um, you know, you, you lure people in, make them feel safe, love bomb. I know there's a whole process. And in this case, you know, they were family connections. Um, so Ruth's uh, so smart and his wife, Mary, um, all their children are dead. They've been linked. You know, I think there were like six children. Um, uh, DNA testing. And so he's the, he's, he's a really interesting one. Smart. <laughs> uh, how they did it. Um, the picture that's emerging for me is, you know, Mackenzie himself would preside over these burials. Like everybody was 
scheduled to die exactly on a certain day. Like, I, I don't... The um, Francis Wanjay is a, is a um, elderly uh, teacher in Mombasa, and his grandchildren, three of them, went to Shakahola with his daughter. And um, one, the eldest survived, and the two younger ones died. The mother suffocated them. Um, they were supposed to die March 15th, 16th, 17th. And uh, the grandfather happened to just get to Shakahola the day um, that uh, Ephraim, I think he was seven, was supposed to die. Uh, and <clears throat> then he found out that his two younger ones um, uh, went to Jesus. And because they weren't ready to starve to death on those days, um, the mother you know, pinched the nose and covered the mouth, and that was it. That is horrific. It is, and uh, I, I, I mean, I, I, I can't, I cannot wrap my head around. Um, it's hard to visualize, you know, um, why, you know, the, the a mother's natural instinct is not to kill their child, right? So, how. <clears throat> It must be very powerful, but I guess you can only really, I think it'll come out eventually what the rationale was. But um, uh, first of all, the children are the weakest. Um, and I also believe that he saw children as being in the way, you know, his followers meeting Jesus before the end times. So it was just sort of a um, house cleaning something like that. I don't know. Um, but he would preside over these, these things that he called these ceremonies that he called weddings. And it's what he their heavenly bridegroom. Exactly. You know, COVID was the thing that was, that nailed it for him, you know, because that was every reason in the world to go into the desert and away from the satanic world, away from, uh, uh, COVID injections. Um, um, and so people died. They died there. Uh, I know that there were other types of, there, there were other fasts, you know, uh, fasts that took place. Because I, I think there was another time when he said he thought that uh, the world was going to come to an end. I think it was something like uh, April of 2023. It didn't happen. So he had to move it. And I'm wondering, is that true also of um, these other uh, doomsday cults like uh, Lori Daybell? So, yeah, it's really common for cults to move the goalposts. I think that's usually the, the term uh, that, mm -hmm. that most people use for it. You know, they, they set their dates. Uh, the dates mm -hmm. come. Nothing happens. And they move the goalpost uh, to, to, to new dates. Yeah, the... Where I come from, that was very common. We we went through, I think, about seven to eight different doomsday dates during my lifetime. So <laughs> it's very common uh, for, for it to hit and miss. And with each cycle, you tend to get more radical, more radical, more radical. Oh, interesting. You've invested that, that much more into it, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Each cycle leads to the, the more lucid people wake up and leave. And what remains is the crazier. So you gradually, the balance shifts towards crazy, you know, as the people with more common sense wake up and leave through those cycles. And then the influence is ever increasingly crazy. One of the former followers of Branham sent me, <clears throat> gosh, it was like 15 to 17 big boxes of Branham literature, books, recordings. They had this wide collection of almost everything. And I've been... In the slow process of going through it, one of the things I found, which is really interesting, is there are some some of the books, and unfortunately they've got names, so I can't show it on the video feed, but there's some of the books that have, you know, the name of the person, and then I think there might even be the pastor's name, but they've got a date and a math calculation to that date. In other words, we have six yes, years I've left. Seen 
then the doomsday. And then there's another, when that one fails, there's a clear mark through it. Here's another math calculation, and here's the next doomsday that Charles has. Yes. <laughs> Charles has one up here. Perfect. Well, I, I want to say there were like 15 different dates in this in this one book that I held. So, does that mean that, you know, these pastors don't lose any credibility when... They, they don't. From what I have been able to gather, you know, this is nothing new. This, you know, you can trace this way back to the days of even Gnosticism, how they come up with all of these different ways in which the world is going to end. And happily, there will be a doomsday, which is odd when you think of it. <clears throat> but especially in the United States, and then it spread, you know, through the United States and Great Britain, it spread into Africa. I've been studying British Israelism very deeply and uh, heavily, and I've learned that they did the same thing. And it was a British Israel construct wherein they were predicting dates in which the world would end. And they were using weird calculations, such one of the most common one was the the length of the tunnels in the Great Pyramid of Giza going to the king's chamber. And they had measured out, like if there was a bump in the, <laughs> in the path that went down, that bump was a mile marker or a time marker. And they, right. were, they would reassess that length and duration over time. And when one failed, it was expected that they would recalculate and go to a new one. Well, that spread into Pentecostalism through famous figures. Charles Fox Parham, the founder of Pentecostalism, was in this. Well, they kept recalculating and recalculating, and it became such a common thing that nobody thinks anything about it if they move a doomsday date. There's no explanation. There's a really good book. Uh, Lead the sign actually recommended at one point where I found it at is um, it's called um, When Prophecy Fails. And I think it's by mm. a man named Leo Festinger, I think. Anyways, he, he was, a, I believe, a professor sociologist who joined a doomsday cult to observe mm. um, how failed prophecy uh, affects the groups. And so he did a number mm. of studies and um, and he, he kind of traced through um, generally when the failed prediction happens, you have um, a small segment of people who wake up and leave, right? Uh, and then the majority who stay, to them, it was a test of their faith. And now they're, they're staying, has proven they're the true believers. And, and he, in that book, he walks through, and it's a very good book, walks through how it slowly radicalizes um, the people. Each prediction leads to further radicalization, further radicalization, mm-hmm. and... Um, and so the longer the group exists, like, like you take Paul McKenzie, of course, we don't know, but presumably this would not be his first doomsday prophecy, right? He's probably yeah. had a series of them that led up to this point. Probably, you know, we don't know. Uh, but it, it's very common for there to be multiples. And with each iteration, they're getting yeah. deeper and deeper into the hole. Yeah. And uh, into the hole he is now. Um, you know... This is doesn't naturally lead to what I'm about to say, but I, I, I noticed that when I saw photos of him the other day, after a week now of having, you know, really heavy charges of terrorism, manslaughter, torture leveled at him um, and his followers, you know, he did not look like Jack the Lad anymore. You know, he, 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 because he was a pretty confident, happy go lucky guy, really. Um, he just got away with so much. And now I think it's pretty clear that it's not going to happen. He, 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 he looked, uh, he did not look good. You know, he looked almost suicidal, you know, just from having watched his, his face, you know, for so many days and months and weeks. Um, but people say that he's, you know, that he still has a hold on his followers you know, um, which is interesting. Um, um, you know, that they're communicating somehow. And certainly every time they go to court together, <laughs> you know, it's a chance for them, you know, to uh, galvanize uh, whatever remaining radicalization they've got. Uh, you know, um I think, you know, it's interesting because that that law court called Shanzu in Mombasa um, 
is where a famous um, uh, Al-Shabaab recruiter named, uh, his nickname was Makaburi for Gravedigger, was, uh, I had interviewed the guy. Um, it was 2014, 10 years ago. And um, he was coming out of that same court. And when guys in tinted uh, windows, you know, the car, rolled down the windows and then, you know, shot him dead as he was crossing the street to go to the mosque. And I, I just, you know, have this horrible feeling that it could, he could have a similar end, maybe not by gunfire, but I don't know. Yeah. That, I mean, I, I, I hope not, but if you think of Kenya's track record of dealing with things. Um, One of the things you... In, in the way that you described him, it reminded me um, years ago when I first escaped this the Branhamism side of things. <clears throat> there was this trial, but uh, I think it was Jody Arias was the trial I was watching. It was on the news, and I just I had it up while I was working one day, and I suddenly began to recognize themes in her responses and defense that reminded me of the cult mindset, and that's actually what one of the things that made me decide to go deeper into studying cults in general, but she had read this book called the secret and oh, I remember that. Yeah. Basically it's Gnosticism, but it's repackaged mm -hmm. in a book called the secret. And it's the notion that you can influence events by thinking positively in your mind, which is the mm -hmm. whole framework for this divine healing thing that emerged in latter rain. Positive confession basically is the, it's using the secret. It's using Gnosticism. <clears throat> and the way you described Mackenzie reminded me of the way that I viewed her because she had this confidence that she was having a positive confession in her mind and she was going to have a positive outcome in the trial. I'm wondering if that influence may have, you know, I know it wasn't the secret that influenced McKenzie, but the religion itself, because they share that framework, I'm wondering if that may have had some influence. I would think it definitely does from conversations with his family members. You know, I mean, if, if I say something negative about maybe a potential act, don't think that way. Don't think that way. You have to always be positive. Think, you know, um, you know, it's like Satan entering your brain. If you think negatively, uh, it's, um, I'm sure, I, but I also think that he was, has been able to get away with a lot, right? You know, I mean, you know, after police found some 70 kids going to school in his church, uh, that was radicalization then, I mean, that was 2017, um, and it was like a $70 bond, you know, something, it's nothing. Wow. Um, I liked what you said there about, um, you know, the, the positive thinking, because, uh, you know, it's very common in these groups that they have almost weaponized positive thinking. That's part of the way mm. they shut down critical thought. Um, mm. Negative thoughts is some, it's almost demonic possession. Um, so you don't allow yourself to think negatively. And so by not allowing that to happen, critical thoughts never start, start in your mind. You never can start down the path of thinking, wait a minute, my cult leader is going to kill us all, right? Because you can't even get that initial thought off in your mind to set off, the, you know, that chain reaction. Yeah, the alarm bells. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's and so that's very common. I, I, I think that, that he, uh, yeah, the positive, I can see that in his, his uh, children are, are, are very much about that. And, uh, um, you know, everything is all good or it's all bad. And uh, one thing about my article that the, the son didn't like um, had to do with uh, he, he really reacted quite um, harshly uh, was was mention of Mackenzie walking entering a church walking backwards. Um, so I I I. I I really didn't know where to go with that, but he said, why'd you put that in there? Because it's like, you know, this comes from Ruth and Ruth, uh, you know, hates my dad and is out to smear him. And it's like, well, she did say it, you know, and, uh, 
And if you don't put something out there, you're not going to get any response, you know, because it could lead to something else, couldn't it? Somebody else can say, oh, yes, I've heard about yeah. that church. Well, um, a lot of cases, they if they can detect that you're talking with somebody who has critical thoughts against them, they will try to suppress that person's voice. So it probably wasn't so much about even him walking backwards as it was the fact you're talking to the enemy. You're talking to somebody who has critical thought. Well, yeah. When I spoke with Ruth, it was way back in, uh, I guess, June. And um, at that point, she didn't know where her, you know, the daughter and all the children, um, grandchildren were. Uh, and now she knows. So I'm, I'm hoping to, to interview her again next week when I go back to Melindy. But, um, um, yeah, she, it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, how, what kind of mindset must Mackenzie have to not hear any <laughs> critical thinking coming from the outside? I, that's what I want to know is it, that that is very positive thinking, hyper positive thinking. Um, about your own worldview, um, or was he thinking about the money, or what was he thinking about? You know what what drove him. You know that's still the kind of uh, sixty four thousand dollar question. I know early on, um, March, April. You know, as the video cameras were going into the commune, and you know the bodies were coming out, all that was being filmed. There was a number of news stories that they had photographs and video of the literature and material that was coming out of the commune too. Um, and that's part of, I know what sparked our, our interest to look in, into this to begin with is because we recognized, um, we recognized the literature, uh, something we were intimately familiar with, uh, you know, where, where John and I come from. And I was just curious, I mean, how has Mackenzie or any of them, or maybe they haven't even been asked, how do they respond to, you know, the existence of that literature? Um, what, what do they say about, all, you know, the all of the message literature that they had? There's What's the, their take? He's got an answer for everything. <laughs> um, and I remember uh, asking that question at some point, and um, the answer was simply, well, you know, over two or three years, people come and go and they leave stuff at our house. Sounds plausible enough, right? <laughs> yeah. And you know, on that on that same front, you know, very interestingly, right, like we find him speaking some of the same themes yeah. that are in that is in those books that we know is there. Uh, I don't know the same. Did he have any kind of response around? Or maybe he wasn't asked as well. Anything around how that um around how he may have adapted or used any of that did he is, did he have anything to say about um his connections to William Brown at all or he totally deny all that um well like you i saw the same uh, news footage with the police fanning out all this literature that they found at Chacahola. and of course i saw william branham and thought who's this and you know I, wikipedia and then immediately found you two started leaving frantic messages on <laughs> the comment thread of your, of your videos and uh, podcasts. And, um, and, you know, that's how I uh, first learned about him. So about William Branham myself. And uh, although I think I have relatives that were very close to, to following him in Indiana. Um, anyway. Uh, so one of the first things I did when I had a chance to, um, speak with Mackenzie's immediate family. It was asked about William Branham and uh, everybody flat out said they'd never heard of William Branham until I mentioned the name. So this is like his son, brother, sister, aunt, you know, et cetera, mother. Um, and, uh, but then I asked, well, what about voice of God recordings? Have you heard of that? Oh, yes, yes, we've heard of Voice of God recordings. Well, of course, as we know, you can't know one without the other, right? So um, I don't know how, how he's going to explain that any further. <laughs> I really don't. If that Was that, uh, you know, um, 
denial by omission or ignorance. I don't know. I, I, I don't know yet. Um, you yeah. don't hear the name Branham, but, but voice of God is, you know, a physical presence. Whereas Branham, you know, as far as they're concerned, the, the followers, they may just think what they're hearing on the tapes is the voice of God. I don't know. That's really odd. It's If I remember correctly, those books said spoken word and not voice of God recordings. And the key phrase is, you know, you're right, it could be the voice of God, but voice of God recordings is fairly, you know, that's fair, fairly narrowing it down to the organization. That's really interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, I... I, the literature there was just, it was mind boggling when, when we saw that in the pictures because it wasn't like, you know, um, he had a library, there was a library literature from various authors. It was 100%, um, message literature that he had, 100%. Yeah. And so that was just kind of mind boggling to look at that. And so, yeah. And then when we find traces of him actually preaching elements of the message in his sermons, um, you know, it yeah. seems like a very, obvious explanation as to where he learned serpent seed, for example, right? Well, the message literature, obviously, it just seems to to make sense, right? And so, um, but it's odd, though, then that he would not um, embrace embrace that, right? He's preaching it, but not embracing the the origin of it. So it's very interesting. And I wonder what that's about. I know that we have had many conversations about this, um, or back and forth on Twitter uh, about um, what could he have been thinking? Uh, did he not know? Um, did he not care? Uh, did he want to take 100% credit? Um, uh, I mean, he made a video all about the serpent seed, right? Nobody else does that. It's yeah. a very clear smoking gun that he he was taking at least some of what he got out of those books, some of what he, some of his influences, obviously message. I mean, in my, in my opinion, as I look at it. Yeah. My, <clears throat> when I first saw those books, my initial assessment was that he had been influenced by, but you know, I, I would not call him the message. Like I would call the, the cult here, the message. Um, I, I used this example earlier before the call, but I use it again. <clears throat> my bathtub i've got a a ring of rust that has just recently started to appear and it takes time for this to happen the water looks clean when it comes out but it's mixed with impurity and you don't become radicalized immediately you have sometimes very good healthy doctrines but mixed with something that's very very vile and sinister when that combination happens over time somebody whose mind is not quite working correctly will latch on to the impurity or the 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 very destructive doctrines and in this case serpent seed that was my turning point for saying okay charles we've got to dig deeper in this because serpent seed is william branham's specific branding of the christian identity doctrine branham took the dual seed doctrine of Christian identity, and he labeled it with his branding called Serpent Seed. And the fact that McKinsey was teaching this, it's it, for me, you know, it's not, I can't say that it's 100% labeling him as a message cult follower, but at least shows a very clear path of influence. Yeah, that would be my, my kind of interesting assessment, too, is basically that he... Somewhere he has adapted, he's got a hold of these teachings, and somehow he has incorporated that into his overall ideology. So kind of like we, we know from William Branham, right? William Branham, he borrowed a piece of his ideology from here, another piece over there, and he pulls together this unique hodgepodge and tells us this is the yeah. message. And that's very common from what we understand from cult leaders, you know, uh, Ranieri, the Nixium guy, and all the mm-hmm. others. They do that very similar. They go out and they find other people who've already done it, and they borrow pieces, bits and pieces from here and put it together almost as their own ideology. I really think that uh, it, it, it appears to me that's what McKenzie was probably doing as well, pulling bits and pieces from here, pull together his own unique ideology, and one of his uh, major sources was the message. Can you Do you see any other messages, I mean, other sources of his ideology? Was uh, other uh, groups? <laughs> well, I I think um, n- now from what 
this is just kind of an observation. So we have uh, very early on, there was a website, I think, called Bitter Weeds or Bitter Herbs. I can't. Bitter Winter? Bitter Winter. There you go. Yeah, they they <laughs> had, um, there was immediately denials from this group called the Jesus Christians, um, mm. who, again, it's, it seems to be that they are a, you know, a splinter group of David Burke's children of God. Um, th- there was some a lot of denials, and they had connections to them um, in that article. Um, and, of course, I kind of dismissed that myself when I saw all that. I'm like, well, you know, I don't really know too much about those. But, you know, as we know, there are videos of them there teaching, and it, it does mm-hmm. seem to be that they were certainly pulling some ideology from that group, too. I don't have you found anything on that on that um, in that area yourself? Yeah, clearly it's important because it was um, it was it was included in the, uh, the the ad hoc Senate committee report on Chacahola that um, uh, they say a Westerner or a foreigner um, gave a sermon at uh, Paul McKenzie's church in Nairobi, and um, definitely uh, this was this was just after. Uh, he was shutting, he shut down his church and um, it was 2019. They had the Huduma number, which is the national, the digital national ID, which is supposed to be, well, as uh, Bitter Winter Org says, as one step closer to the mark of the beast. It's not actually the mark of the beast. By this time, uh, Mackenzie had already, um, he, he didn't call them sermons. They were seminars. I guess he couldn't legally call them sermons. So he was in Western Kenya where nobody knew him talking to ignorant people. And, and he gave the video in which he says, uh, um, uh, I'm hearing that there are people that don't want to preach Jesus because their children are crying from hunger. Let them die. Where's the problem? Wow. This was all the same. Yeah. And I can give you the link. I'll send you the link to that particular video. So this was the same year that uh, A Voice in the Desert, um, a.k.a. Jesus Christians, uh, also paid a visit. Now there's a big um, controversy over whether they were invited or whether they just showed up. Yeah. So in the future, people will have to choose. You either choose God and you live by faith. You trust him for food and clothes and everything. A major fear that people have, a very big fear, is that they will starve if they don't work for money. If you don't have, like the government, they are saying, if you don't have a Duma card, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do the next thing. When the mark of the beast comes, it says you cannot buy or sell. Where do you get your food, your water, your clothes, medicine, shelter? To some extent, that supports my theory. All I have at this point are opinions and theories, which are subject to change based on the information that comes out. But what what I see and what I know is that when a group gets radicalized, Often their sources of influence are multiple. It's not from one single source. What you've described here, now that is significant just based on what happened and what was said, but I have to assume, based on the fact that they did have William Branham's literature, and we, there are other groups who claim that, you know, McKenzie was off and he was learning from other people too. We don't have the names of those groups, obviously. I wish we did. But there were obviously many different influences. This group from Australia just happened to be the one that got caught on camera. We, at the same time, have video footage. Um, I'm not going to give the guy's name, but a very prominent message figure who's holding similar revivals or meetings or conventions, however you want to call it, right there in the same area, not not very far from where this happened. So... You've got all of these different influences. Now, where where in time did McKenzie get the message literature? How was that related to the Australia? I don't know. 
Could the Australia group have given it to him? We also don't know. But we have had a person who was in David Berg's original Children of God sect who has defected and he is now free he's escaped from this that gave us a wealth of information about <clears throat> Berg's propagation of William Branham's key destructive doctrines which included the end of days doctrines the, the ones that apparently it, it appears that McKenzie was radicalized with so then the question also comes did the Australian group also hold those because they appear to be a splinter group of even that so they're one two three levels disconnected all of this influence you know you can't say that any one source was the radicalization the the full mm -hmm. radicalization process but all of this together combined it looks like mckenzie has taken the worst elements of each destructive group that he came in contact with radicalized that doctrine and then people started dying I, I, I think the process might have happened sooner, though, when he, uh, you know, got a license uh, for his television studio, and then he became a televangelist in effect. Um, and then, of course, the crazier and more radical his, you know, preachings, the more followers he got. Um, that that's the sense I get. Uh, I, and then it came to a screeching halt when. Um, uh, you know, the, the very thing that brought him so much fame also led to his downfall because it also caught the attention of the authorities. And, uh, and that, that uh, even though he was let out on bond, he was arrested, let out on bond, um, you know, he decided to kind of go, you know, underground in a way. Yeah. Um, uh, I think Shakahola was underground as I was piecing all of this together, the fact that it was underground was also critical to my connecting it to the message. Because when you go underground, when you're thinking that the doomsday is coming, what literature are you going to take you, with you to the underground? And, you know, here we see all of these books from Voice of God recording, Spoken Word, I think is the publication company. <clears throat> How, why did they choose that literature, that specific literature? That's a question that I would love to see answered. We may never have the answer. I will try to find out. You know, I mean, surely those exact do uh, booklets must have a copyright date, right? Would they? Yeah, they, they do have published dates in the front of them. And yeah. we can tell from the, from the, from the covers, some of them mm. are, are the, are the most recent edition. I'll put it that way. The cover art is one way you can kind of date them, and it's the most recent uh, version of cover art on a segment of them. Whereas others are uh, the cover art from the uh, from the eighties. I recognize some of the cover art from the eighties, all the way up to cover art from the two thousands. So um, it's a a range of age in that literature is pretty interesting. You know, one of the things that you said earlier that has just this moment has just struck me. You talked about the the person who gave McKenzie the literature. The the tr these were transcripts of William Branham's sermons, and what Charles just said is true. Thinking back through those covers, some of those covers are very very new. If you went to buy them today, that's the same exact cover you'd get. But some of them were very old. Like my grandparents had some of those covers. And I'm trying to picture somebody who would give this to McKenzie who would have both copies. This was definitely a person who was very, very deeply involved with the message. This is not your casual, Here, here's some literature I bought. This is somebody who had the old versions and the new versions. And then they took them to the massacre, which meant these were of value to them. Yeah. And like I said earlier, he's talking about the serpent seed doctrine. There's this question as to whether or not, I know his TV license got pulled and there's some other things that happen. I'm wondering if the authorities had linked the serpent seed to the white supremacy in the United States that it stemmed from. What are your thoughts in general on the, you know, McKenzie's teaching of the serpent seed? Well, uh, that that's the aspect that to this day, you know, has me flummoxed because, uh, 
you know, I have learned thanks to uh, you know, reading about uh, William Branham and you two, um, you know, that the serpent seed is, is a racist creed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, why is uh, a Kenyan preaching it? Um, now, he made a video. It's all about the serpent seed, but it really addresses, you know, education is bad, the UN is bad, sex is bad. Okay, it doesn't go any farther than that. There's no any, you know, there's nothing about British Israelism or, um, I, it, you know, it really doesn't, it's not spelled out uh, the implications, you know, that, that Eve mated with uh, Satan and begat the blacks and browns of the and Jews of the world. Um, although, uh, funnily enough, you know, ever st since I started posting stuff on my Facebook public page, I've, I have, uh, Kenyan Bran Branamites, uh, communicating with me. And, um, I've asked them about the serpent seed and, and they say, well, you know, all Arabs are from Satan and so on, you know, so, <laughs> It, it, it's, it's, I still have further to explore with, with these guys on that particular subject, but, uh, I, I don't, I, like I was saying before, I don't know, um, if Paul McKenzie, uh, chose to omit that, uh, part of the serpent seed or didn't, was ignorant of it, um, or knew about it, but, didn't for obvious reasons didn't see any reason to go there because it would it would advance nothing you know for him yeah. I would think yeah and that's one as I was analyzing what he said <clears throat> that's actually one of the things that drove me further to look at the connection between him and Branham because the serpent seed doctrine that Branham taught. Branham removed the words black and Jew from it. He took the Christian identity racist theology took out the words black, took out the words Jew, <clears throat> but he's teaching the same thing in his theology. He's anti-education because remember the timeline. Branham is saying these things during the heat of the battle between the uh, integration of school, public integration of schools and the, you know, the protesters who were not wanting to racially integrate. So he's against education. He is against the National Council of Churches, the United Nations. He's he's against any form of organization and hierarchy. So McKinsey is saying exactly what Branham said in his Branham's mm -hmm. overall art, overall theology, not just in his one single serpent seed sermon, which mm -hmm. led me to believe, and it's my opinion, that he has yeah. studied Branham a lot more than he is letting on. I think it was noteworthy, too, um, that Mackenzie, in those Serpent Seed sermons, just like William Branham said, the Catholic Church uh, was was the Serpent Seed, which is, all, you know, one of the ultimate conclusions of Branham's <laughs> Serpent Seed theology is the Catholic Church is the Serpent Seed. And, and Mackenzie right. does follow that same logic, too. It's very, very interesting. The great whore. I mean, I had no idea, you know, I went to Catholic school and I, I had no idea it was so much the enemy um, Christianity. <laughs> well, specifically the racist version of Christianity. The, the yeah. KKK, a lot of people don't realize this. The Klan was not just against the people with black skin. They were, in the state of Indiana, they were actually more anti-Catholic than they were anti-black. And Indiana had the largest Klan back in the, what was it, the 20s. So even that points to William Branham because that's one of Branham's primary theologies Right before doomsday come, the the Catholic Church is going to rise into power as the beast, and Mackenzie is saying the exact same thing. Yeah, there's so many message <laughs> fingerprints on his theology. I mean, I, I, I guess I I just wonder. I mean, did Mackenzie think to himself, "Look at this stuff. I can radicalize people. I can get a lot of followers." I wonder. You know, did he start out with this sort of intention, or um, as a as a kind of a manual, like you say, even to Shakahola, you have very cared for uh, booklets from William Branham. So the message meant a lot. You know, was it a recipe or was it something near and dear? Was he a true believer? 
I would love to know the answers to those things. It's <laughs> a big mystery. Um, well, you know, we're soon to find out. Uh, it, on February sixth, the court will be determining. Will tell us whether uh, Mackenzie he will have had tests, mental assessment tests, to find out whether he's mentally fit to stand trial for murder. So, are other people um, being charged besides Mackenzie? So many. There, there are. I think it's total ninety-five people, and they're 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 all uh, men, women, suspects. Uh, I mean, um, uh, rescuees turned suspects that were found at Shakahola alive, and that wouldn't talk, and that still don't talk. You know, I'm also speculating here, and. It's not even opinion. It's just speculation, which I usually avoid on the podcast, but it's relevant, so I will. I came across a news article where the government had <clears throat> they had invaded what appeared to be a home church. In the message, there are these tape home churches where they listen to tapes of William Branham, and the authorities had invaded them because they were they were holding this thing that was not commissioned by the government, apparently. And so they invaded a Branhamite sect in Kenya with all of these people being charged and with their connection to what could be perceived as an extremist religion by some. I'm wondering if the denial was just simply to say, no, we're, we're not from anything that could be perceived as extremist. All of this came from McKenzie, and he is our source. He is our he's our central figure, eliminating the possibility for tying links to other extremist organizations. It's interesting you should say that because I um, was reading uh, about one group who was just saying, you know, we don't want to be linked to McKenzie. Uh, whatever he did, we had no idea about any starvation you know, in the desert. Um, whoever was radicalized um, by Mackenzie and whatever Mackenzie was radicalized by was a result of his own private thoughts, his own uh, interpretation. So thereby distancing this group with him. So in other words, you could easily say the guy was nuts. He had a screw loose. Um, Otherwise, I, I mean, I'll never forget when Charles told me once uh, that the, um, I thought it was a great analogy that, uh, you know, you could look at the Branham teachings and maybe other similar teachings as a kind of like a weapon um, in and of itself. It's harmless. It's just a weapon. It's just there. Um, it can't kill anybody. Um, but it, all it takes is, you know, a bullet. And that bullet can be the form of uh, uh, a psychopath. Yeah. And and then you have the perfect match. That's a very good analogy. You know, like I said, when I first started looking at this group, I thought I would not call them a message cult. But we have been in contact with escapees from other sects and subsects of the message wherein a person who had that loaded gun, they also had a mental health condition of some sort, and they became radicalized, or maybe they just simply had narcissistic personality disorder. They became radicalized, and their group became so extremist that the main sect of the message, the, the primary, you know, the, the primary root of the message would disavow the splinter group. Yet the Splinter Group is teaching the exact same theology, but it's emphasizing the destructive parts. The destructive parts are all there. They're just emphasizing the destruction, the parts that are destructive. So reinforcing it, just Absolutely. repeating it over and, over and over again. For me, you know, having not met him in person, you know, all you have mm-hmm. is his video and his actions, right? Um, and the, you know, the tidbits you hear. My thought is um, he probably started out as somebody who was on the sane side of things. He probably started out as somebody who might have even started out as a true believer. Um, Mm -hmm. Somewhere along the way, I think I would say he's probably someone who cracked. He cracked somewhere along the way and lost it. And I would say he's probably mentally deranged. Um, 
to mm-hmm. at, at least at least for a period of time when he did that stuff, he had it was almost I would think in some sort of a mental derangement. Um, and then he's got the loaded weapon of his ideology to kill people with, right? So he's like a madman with the weapon, um, and unfortunately, he killed a whole lot of people with it. Not not too terribly dissimilar to people who have mental derangement and go into schools, you know, here in America and do things. So it's not terribly different. He's just got a different sort of weapon. Premeditated. Oh yeah, I think he premed. Yeah, he thought it through and he he pulled it off. My opinion is somewhat different, but <laughs> I'm going to speak on behalf of all of the people who are in our support groups who are going through the process of deconstructing and deprogramming. <clears throat> There's a deep level of mind control in these types of destructive groups, and that's why they radicalize. And how they radicalize is each unique in their own way. You can take the same set of foundations that Paul McKenzie had and another group may radicalize in another way that's not deadly, but they're still radicalized. And what I've come to understand is it is like a train barreling down the tracks and suddenly there are no tracks. The train might go straight ahead. It might go off a cliff. You really don't know, but there's no, there's no, there's no tracks. It's, it's just barreling ahead. I have the unique perspective of having been in Branham churches from Arizona to South Carolina and everywhere in between. And I knew many of these churches before we moved to one of the locations. I'd listened to some of these sermons. And then when I moved there, there was a progression of difference. And I have a very analytical mind. So I always, even as a child, I was curious of the variance. Why is it different? And... After, you know, gradually changing into an adult, I started to realize that some of these things are progressing in different ways, and that's why you have all of these different splinter groups of the message. William Branham had no consistency. In fact, he had multiple varying stage personas with sometimes Mm. polar opposite doctrines. So one group may focus on one set of doctrines. The other one may focus on the other. Well, they both... In some cases, they're both destructive, but they gradually produce different results. So in my opinion, I don't see McKenzie as holding a loaded weapon and saying, hey, I can use this and I can radicalize people and I can make money. I actually see him as a genuine person who thinks he's doing the right thing, but he's using the wrong thing to do it and doesn't recognize that, combined with the fact that he probably does have some sort of a either a mental health disease or disorder, that combination is what becomes catastrophic. But anyway, I'm, I'm very excited that we had you on the show, Margo, and I, uh, w- I want to do this again soon. I don't know if you'd be willing, but I'd love to do this yes. again as we get more information. Absolutely. I'll have uh, part two almost ready. Um, so Excellent. Well, <clears throat> we'll have you back soon, and... Um, For our listeners, if you've enjoyed the show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the Healing Revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. 